Now, I want to speak on something that is maybe a little different than sermons I've preached before. Because in prayer, I felt to speak on depression and dealing with depression. Now, this is a topic that truthfully in the past, at least for me, I grew up in church, just in general, there was a lot of stigma. But the reality is, is that depression is actually real, and it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Now, for anyone who has actually dealt with depression or knows somebody who has dealt with depression, they know how crippling it can actually be. See, if you've gone through it, you know that you can't actually think clearly. Maybe you don't have an appetite. You don't feel like eating or drinking. And if it's really, really bad, you actually physically can't even get up out of bed. See, with depression, even just the seemingly like smallest task, like washing a cup or washing a plate, that would be fine in normal life, actually feels like a mountain. And it actually feels like it takes a mountain of effort to do that thing. It's brutal. Now please hear me out. Uh, Sometimes depression can be spiritual. And yes, I do fully believe that the Lord can heal somebody because our God is very big and our God can do anything. However, I do have to say, Sometimes medication is needed, and that's okay. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you need to take medication to manage depression, I do have to say that that's okay. It doesn't make you any less of a Christian. It doesn't make you um, less holy or mean that you're less spiritual or mean that you don't have faith or mean that God doesn't love you. No, you're still loved by your heavenly father. You're still fearfully and wonderfully made. But I believe in scripture that God actually lays out some practical steps and things that we can use to battle depression, no matter what it looks like in our lives. And for a little bit of context, this is not something that I've actually ever shared Um, with anyone aside from my family. But for me personally, I've fallen into depression twice in my lifetime. And and I don't mean depression like, oh, she was sad and cried for a couple days. No, no, no. Like, I mean actual depression where it was like I was actually bedridden. See, the first time that it happened to me was the week of my college grad, literally the week where I was about to walk the stage, something ended up happening that sent me spiraling into deep depression. And I would say it was really bad for like a week. I was bedridden. Uh, I wouldn't talk to anyone. I didn't really eat or, or drink. I didn't sleep. And the aftermath of that lasted a few weeks. And actually, thinking back to it, it's like it's a little bit of a fog. Like, I can't actually remember all of it. But I know at the time, I was living at home because it was free. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Bless you. Um, (laughs) But at the time, I had actually really scared my parents because they had never, ever seen me in such a state where I I literally was in bed for a week. 
And then the second time that it happened was actually while I was working here. And both times it was bad, but the first time was definitely worse. And the second time that it happened, it was for a shorter period of time. Now, truthfully, I wish that the first time that I went through it, that I learned these things that I'm going to share with you today. Because while it didn't necessarily make my depression go away, the second time that I went through it, it did significantly help me in getting through it. Now, while I'm not an expert by any means on depression, I do believe God does set things out in his word to help us combat and deal with it. Because truthfully, if you've dealt with it, or you have seen a loved one deal with depression, you know that it's a battle. And so today, I actually want us to look at 1 Kings 19. Because there's a man who you might have heard of by the name of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a man of God who was used in incredible, incredible ways by God. And yet, he was somebody who, I believe, dealt with depression and actually got to the point where he actually wanted to die. Now, before we read the passage, I'm just going to give a little bit of context. So this passage takes place, 1 Kings 19, right after this big showdown that happens on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And so for those of you who don't know the story, during this period of time, there was a, a guy named Ahab, and he was the king of Israel. And at this point in time, Israel and Judah were two separate kingdoms. So he was the king of Israel. And politically, Ahab was great, like super strong politically. He kept peace with the kingdom of Judah. Um, he won tons of battles against Syria, who was an enemy at that point in time. But spiritually, like this man was a walking disaster for Israel. See, First Kings, if you actually read through it, gives like these little reports of all of the rulers of Israel. And it says, okay, well, this king did right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did evil. See, Ahab was so spiritually bad for Israel that it actually says that he did the most evil out of any other king before him. Now, part of the problem was that Ahab married this foreign woman named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was an avid worshiper of this cult deity called Baal. And so as she married Ahab, she decides to impose this cult on the people of God. And so, well, what's the easiest way to do that? Kill off the priests, right? So this is what she does. She kills off as many of the Lord's priests and prophets that she could get her hands on. And we see this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. And for those of you that don't know, prophets is just a fancy word for people who um, would basically hear from the Lord and then they would share what the Lord spoke to the rest of the people. So in a sense, they were kind of like a mouthpiece for the Lord. So Jezebel, by killing off the prophets of the Lord, the people who spoke for the Lord, who were the voice of the Lord in the land, was essentially trying to silence the Lord's voice to the people. And as a result of this, she was quite effective in turning the people away from God. 
So this is the context of everything. And then we have Elijah, who's one of these prophets. He's one of these people that hears from the Lord, and he sees everything that's going on, and he's bugged. So everything kind of comes to a point or a head when Elijah decides to propose this prayer contest. So essentially what Elijah proposes is that the prophets of Baal would build an altar, and then Elijah would build an altar, and then they would each take the time and pray. They would offer a sacrifice because that's how they did worship back then. And then the sacrifice that was consumed by fire would prove which God was real. Now, just a side note, because I know that this confused me when I was younger, growing up in church. Um, there's Elijah and Elisha, right? And sometimes we get confused, or at least I did when I was growing up. So a way to remember the difference, J comes before S in the alphabet. So Elijah came before Elisha. And Elisha is Elijah's successor, okay? That was for free. All right. <laughs> so they go, and the prophets of Baal agree to this. And so they go early in the morning, and they gather all of the people of Israel and all of the prophets. And so the prophets of Baal decide to go first, and there's 450 of them. And so they build their altar and they do their sacrifice and they pray and they pray and they pray and, well, nothing happens. And then noon rolls around and they're starting to get a little desperate because they're praying and they're praying and they're praying and nothing's happening. And so as desperation starts to set in, they start doing some gruesome things like just kind of like cutting themselves and doing their ritual dances and all of this stuff. Meanwhile, and I, this is why I love Elijah because he's quite, quite a fun, fun character. Meanwhile, Elijah's just standing there and he's watching them and he's watching them panic and he's just chirping them off the entire time. He's literally like, what? Baal's not answering you guys? Oh my goodness. You know what? Maybe he went on a trip. Oh, no, you know what? I got it. I got it. He didn't go on a trip. He must be sleeping. That's why he can't hear you guys. And then my favorite one. <laughs> Elijah actually says, no, guys, I finally figured it out. He went to the bathroom. That's why he's not coming. <laughs> so meanwhile, all of this is happening. And then Elijah finally has enough. And he's like, okay, hey, this, this is actually ridiculous. Um, so he calls all of the people over, and he has them actually pour water, not once or twice, but three different times over the altar that he builds to the Lord in direct opposition to the worship to Baal. And he doesn't do something similar to what they did. No, no, no. He doesn't do some uh, crazy big ritual or something for show. No, all Elijah does is he just prays a simple prayer. And it's something along the lines of, Lord, these are your people. God, would you show up so that they can know you, so that they can see you, and their hearts can turn back to you. And God honors his prayer. So fire comes down, 
and literally consumes everything, like not just the sacrifice, but the altar (laughs) and everything around it. And so, of course, the people of Israel were like, wow, God is real. Um, So they turn back to the Lord and they kill off the prophets of Baal. And then just a little bit after this, Elijah, beginning in 1 Kings 18, verse 41, decides to go and pray for rain. Because, see, what had happened was because the people of God were disobedient and they weren't serving the Lord, God had allowed a three-year time period where there was famine. And so now because the people of God had turned back to the Lord and they were serving the Lord, God said, okay, famine's over. So he sends Elijah to go and pray, and Elijah goes and prays. He bows down and he prays seven times and the rain comes. And though it doesn't actually say in that passage that he prays, we know that he was praying because in James 5 verse 17 it says that. So all of this stuff happens. Crazy day, right? And then we come to 1 Kings 19 verse 1 to 8. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came down, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel of the Lord touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah has been through this incredible moment, literally on the mountaintop with God. God shows up in this very real and tangible way, not only when, um, you know, they were defeating the prophets of Baal and fire comes from heaven, but also when he prays for rain and he sees the rain cloud coming and he sees the rain happening. But all of a sudden, we get to this point where Elijah, who I would say he's this great man of faith, he, he walks with God, he knows the voice of the Lord. But he comes to a point where he literally just wants to give up and die. Kind of makes you think, like, what happened? Now, church, so often we can end up looking at these people in the Bible, right? People that I would classify as giants in the faith. People like Moses, people like King David, people like Elijah, and we look at everything that they've done and everything that they've accomplished for the kingdom of God, and yet we can forget that they were real people that had real struggles. Moses, 
amazing man, led the, the Israelites out of exile from Egypt, out of slavery, parts the Red Sea, does all of these things. Well, Moses had marital problems. <laughs> Talks about this in scripture to the point that he was actually separated from his wife for a time. King David, known as one of the, the greatest kings in the history of Israel, committed adultery and then tried to, well, he did. He murdered a man to try and cover it up. People like Gideon and, and Esther who literally um, saved their people from the enemy. They dealt with things like fear. People like Elijah and, yes, based on the Psalms, also King David, who dealt with things like depression and countless others in Scripture who struggled and dealt with some very real things. Like, these were real people. And sometimes, church, I think we can actually get into a mindset where we think that, well, no, it's only, like, weak Christians, or it's only the new Christians, or it's only the people that lack faith that deal with those things. And the reality is, is, like, that's not always the case. See, Elijah is what I would call a seasoned man of God. He walked with God. He knew what the voice of the Lord sounded like. He regularly prayed. He was full of faith. I mean, the man prayed seven times for rain to come. You don't do that if you don't have faith. He was confident in his God, and he had seen God literally move in powerful ways, right? Like, you don't stand on the mountaintop mocking the prophets of Baal unless you're confident and have faith that your God is going to move and pull through. Elijah had seen God literally heal, restore, and move in very real and tangible ways. And yet, because of a word of a woman, he becomes full of fear. He becomes overwhelmed. And actually, I believe as a result of everything that he had been dealing with, falls into depression. Now, in this passage, I believe that there are some practical, biblical principles that we can take and learn from Elijah that can help us or the people around us battle through depression. When dealing with depression, my first point is this, don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. 1 Kings 19, verse 3 to 4, says, Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. See, I believe Elijah actually isolated himself when he was needing people the most. I find so often... When people are dealing with depression, the tendency is to pull away from people, either because we don't want to share what's actually going on. Maybe we're feeling shame or guilt that we're feeling this way or, or facing that situation. Maybe we're, we're fearful about how other people will react if they know what they'll think of us. Or we think that they just won't care or they don't understand the situation. 
Galatians 6, verse 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Church, we're not called to do life alone. We're called as a body of believers, as a church family, as people who follow Jesus, to carry each other's burdens, to pray, and to love one another with the love of Christ. But the reality is, is we can't do that if we isolate ourselves. Job 16, 20 to 22. Job is actually, um, if you read through, he, he ends up going through a time. And he, he's going through this horrible season, but in the midst of it, he says, my intercessor is my friend. As, he pours, as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. 1 John 4, 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Church, part of loving people well doesn't mean just loving them when life is easy and things are good. Sometimes loving people well actually means standing in the gap. Standing in the gap and fighting and praying and warring for others when they don't actually have the strength to fight and pray and war for themselves. Depression can be heavy. It's a, it's a weighty thing, which is why we need friends, which is why we need to be in healthy community. We need safe people that we can trust, who can rally around us and pray and intercede and fight for us when we don't actually have the strength to pray or fight for ourselves. See, I fully believe that isolation is one of the biggest tactics that the enemy uses. When we isolate ourselves, church, I believe that we leave ourselves vulnerable right? I always uh, equate it to like the little herd of gazelles um, that are out on the African plain, right? If anybody has seen like those, I don't know, the safari documentaries, there's always like a lion or a hyena like crouching and kind of waiting for their moment. And who does the lion or the hyena go after? The one by itself or the baby who's by itself, right? They never go after the herd because they know that their chances are better if they go after the one that's all alone. The one that's all alone becomes easy pickings, more susceptible to attacks. In church, it's the same with us. See, when we actually isolate ourselves, when we allow ourselves to become more vulnerable in that way, we leave ourselves susceptible to attacks from the enemy. And in addition to this, I believe that we put ourselves at greater risk of injury or even being completely taken out because we've actually stepped away from the spiritual protection that comes with being a part of the herd, the body of Christ. When we're in community with one another, we can support and we can fight through prayer, through encouragement, and loving one another with the love of Christ as we're called to. John 13, 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When dealing with depression, don't isolate yourself. 
Take the time to develop close friendships with people that you trust. I would say like two or three people who can actually speak life over you, who can pray and fight for you, and vice versa. Safe people. Now, within our church context, I'm just going to say life groups are a great way to meet people, and they're a great way to develop those friendships. But you can also, and I would say also pray about who those people should be too. But don't isolate yourself. My next point is this. When dealing with depression, rest and eat. 1 Kings 19, verse 5 to 8. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. See, Elijah was exhausted. He had literally just gone through this whole ordeal with the prophets of Baal on the mountain, which literally took all day. And then right after that, he went to, again, the other mountain and then was praying for rain. And truthfully speaking, like when he was praying, it probably wasn't just like a little five-minute prayer. <laughs> like he sat down. He was probably there for a while. Um, but the reality is, is that he actually hadn't eaten. He hadn't rested. And frankly, he hadn't really taken good care of himself during the day. Now, in this passage, 1 Kings 19, while scripture doesn't actually say how long Elijah rested for, we can assume by the amount of time that God gives Elijah to rest, it was actually a long while. Now, in addition to this, God also provided food. See, when dealing with depression, it's important that we actually take the time to rest and take care of ourselves. So that means doing things like eating a proper meal even when we don't actually feel like it. See, in a society that promotes busyness, it's even more important to actually take the time to rest and to eat and to care for ourselves, especially when going through something like depression. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Church, I believe it's God-honoring when we take care of ourselves. Scripture actually states that we're temples of the Holy Spirit when we allow him into our hearts, right? When we accept Jesus into our hearts, then his spirit comes and lives in us. That's the Holy Spirit. 
But scripture also states that we're made in the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, handcrafted by our creator, to the point that God actually calls each of one of us his masterpiece. It's not God-honoring to not eat or to not take care of ourselves. So in dealing with depression, even if you don't feel like it, try and eat something healthy, even if it's just like an apple or a banana, um, or try to eat a real meal, even if that means that you have to buy it or call for takeout or call up that friend um, to go and pick it up for you. The other thing that's really important that Elijah did was rest. So he ate and then he rested. Now, rest is not something new, and it's actually a common theme found in Scripture. Now, we're actually commanded to rest by God. It's actually part of the Ten Commandments, right? You know the, the thing that says, like, don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents? Yeah, that one. Um, resting is in there, too, but it's the one that we somehow like to just ignore, even though... It's in there. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The Sabbath was known as the day of rest. Mark 2, 27. Jesus is actually talking to the Pharisees, and he states, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Why? Because God actually knew the importance of rest. He knew that we need it in order to, to sustain us. Now, rest isn't always just physical, but it can be spiritual as well. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 23 verse 1 to 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd to feed to guide and to shield me, I shall not want. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still and quiet waters. He refreshes and restores my soul, life. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, church, when we rest, I believe we allow the opportunity for God to actually restore and refresh the things that need to be restored and refreshed, which is why God commands us to take Sabbath and rest. When we take the time to rest, then we have greater strength and clarity to keep moving forward and to do that which we're called to do. And this is even more true when dealing with depression. Those of you who are parents who have small children or maybe you've had small children at one point or if you're not a parent maybe you babysat a small child at some point. How many know children need rest? If a child doesn't rest what happens? They get irritable, they get cranky, and frankly they're not really in the right head space, right? their perspective can actually become warped. In church, I believe it's the same with us as the children of God when we don't actually take the time to rest. See, Elijah didn't take the time to rest. 
And as a result, he became overwhelmed when faced with the threats from Jezebel. He knew his God. God literally showed up and, and sent fire from heaven. He knew who his God was. He knew how his God could move, and yet he became overwhelmed. His perspective became warped, and he actually wasn't able to really, I think, perceive the truth of the reality of the situation. 1 Kings 19, verse 9, says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, this is Elijah speaking now, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets, and I, I only am left, and they seek to take my life away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount of the Lord. So basically, in the next few verses, God basically asks this same question twice, like, Elijah, what are you doing here? And both times, Elijah just responds with the same complaints. See, in this passage, Elijah actually states that he was the only prophet left. But that wasn't actually true. See, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, it actually states that there was this man called Obadiah who actually... When Jezebel was going around killing all the prophets of God, Obadiah saw what was happening, and he actually saved a hundred of the prophets and hid them in caves from Jezebel. Now, Elijah actually knew this because he runs into Obadiah, and Obadiah recognizes him and actually tells him that he did this. However, in the midst of his depression... Elijah had forgotten, and he had begun to believe the lie that he was alone. Which brings me to my next point. When dealing with depression, spend time with God. Spend time with God. See, Elijah is deep in depression. He's feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling alone. He's feeling hopeless. He's feeling overcome. And so God actually sends him into his presence. So Elijah goes to mountain, and God sends all of these, like, crazy things. So first there's, like, this crazy wind, but God's not in that. Then he sends, like, this earthquake. <laughs> God's not in that. Then he sends fire. God's not in that. And then all of a sudden, there's this low, quiet whisper. The gentle, still, small voice of the Lord. And Elijah recognizes it right away. Now, I love this moment in Scripture. Because instead of condemning Elijah or rebuking him, God actually just comes and meets Elijah where he's at. And not only meets him where he's at, but he actually encourages Elijah. And he gives him a renewed mission and hope. 1 Kings 19, 15 to 18. Um, I'm just going to kind of summarize it. But 
in this passage, God actually addresses all of the things that Elijah had kind of complained about and was struggling with. See, in this passage, God actually tells him, okay, Elijah, you're actually going to go on a new mission. You're going to anoint new kings for Syria, for Israel, and you're actually going to um, anoint a new prophet who's going to actually be your successor. And not only that, so you'll have somebody to train up who will take your place eventually, but I'm also going to leave a faithful remnant who's going to serve me in Israel. God tells Elijah all of this. And I think this is such a beautiful moment because in the midst of all of his depression, God actually makes a point of reminding Elijah that he's not alone. And he even provides a companion, a friend who was Elisha, who was able to come alongside him and then continue on the work of the ministry. Now, if you actually read ahead, I really love Elijah and Elisha's relationship because to me, Elijah is kind of like the grumpy old man that keeps just trying to get rid of Elisha. <laughs> Any chance he gets, like even when he calls him to, to like come with him, he basically throws a coat on him and walks away and Elisha's like, oh my goodness, like, just give me a second. I'm just going to say bye to my parents. And Elijah's like, go away. I didn't call you. <laughs> like, even though he did. Um, so any chance he gets, he kind of tries to get rid of him. But Elisha is like that really persistent friend that's like, no, I'm going to just love you no matter what. And I'm just going to be here. So I just really find their relationship kind of funny, but also great. And personally, I think God knew what kind of uh, friend that Elijah needed. He needed one of those persistent, maybe even slightly annoying friends. See, when we're depressed, overwhelmed, or we've actually lost our perspective, God, in my experience, can and will often shift things back to perspective for us. He'll encourage us. He'll strengthen us. And yes, he'll correct us sometimes when we need it. But we actually need to be willing to spend time in the presence of God and allow him to speak. James 4, verse 8a says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Even if you're in the midst of deep depression, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So can I just encourage you, do whatever it takes to get into his presence. If you're dealing with depression and you're in a point where you're like, I can't even just like sit up or get up out of bed, well, I think most people have their phones near them um, or near their bed somewhere. If you can't even sit up, most people have a smartphone. So grab your phone, turn on Spotify or YouTube or whatever, and play worship music over yourself until you can actually sit up or get up and you actually feel better. Also, if you can't even sit or, or get up to actually read scripture and speak the truth and the word of the Lord over yourself. Again, there's lots of great apps out there that you can actually listen to the Bible like an audiobook. So you can actually play and listen to the truth of, of the word of God and allow that to play over yourself until you feel better. But church, if you're dealing with depression, do whatever it takes to get into the presence of God. And I believe it will help you in battling it. Spend time with God. 
So in conclusion, if you or a loved one struggles or has struggled with depression, I really hope that the things that I've shared with you today help you and have given you some uh, practical things or practical tools to help you battle through depression. Now, I know depression is a very difficult thing, but it's an even harder thing to go through when we don't have a relationship with Jesus. Matthew 11 Verse 28, Jesus actually states, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, there's actually life. There's rest. There's hope. There's joy. And there's peace when we bring our burdens to the Lord. We don't actually have to struggle and carry the weight of things alone. Psalm 34 Verse 17 to 18 says, is anyone crying for help? God is listening, ready to rescue you. If your heart is broken, you will find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. Disciples so often get into trouble. Still, God is there every time. He's your bodyguard, shielding every bone. Not even a finger gets broken. God desires a relationship with us. It's why he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for each and every single one of us. Because the reality is, is that we're broken. We're sinful. Nothing that we could actually ever do would be good enough to, be, uh, to allow us to be in the presence of a holy and living God. Because sin can't actually stand to be in the presence of God. But through Jesus... We can. God is more than willing and ready to run to us and to help. But we need to be willing to let him in and allow him to. Now, I have to be honest with you. If you do and you make the decision to allow Jesus into your heart and into your life and you make the decision to actually follow him, that doesn't mean that all of your problems will go away and you'll um, never have a struggle ever in your life again. Um, that's, I would be lying to you, frankly, if I said that. You will still have struggles, but it does mean that we're never alone. It does mean that we're never forgotten or forsaken, and it does mean that the God of all creation is now fighting on our behalf. That he will actually lead us and guide us into good things because he is good. So if you desire that for your life, we're just going to pray. A simple prayer. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for me. I thank you for your love and for your peace. I ask you now to forgive me of all I've done wrong, of all my mistakes. Come into my heart. Make me new. And fill me with your peace. In Jesus' name.